0: And Welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I am Jamie Motz. Today is the second episode of our inaugural season, History's Mysteries and True Crimes. As the title suggests, this season we will be exploring historic mysteries and true crimes from the past. Our second episode examines the true crime origins and historical context for the 1992 film Candyman, and it's 2021 sequel. To learn more about all of this and hopefully overcome my fear of mirrors in the dark, I spoke with Dr. Misty Harper. Dr. Harper is an assistant professor of African American history at UNCP. All right. So I'm
1: very excited to talk to Dr. Misty Harper. Excited and nervous, I should say, because Dr. Harper is gonna talk to us today about Candyman. And I and I told Dr. Harper before. We set up this conversation that as a child, I watched the original Candyman and still cannot go into a bathroom without immediately trying to find a light. <laughs> so I have to say, I'm I I'm excited to learn more. I had no idea that this was based in, in history, uh, so I'm very excited to learn about that and maybe I can speak for other people with this knowledge that we're going to get from Dr. Harper today. We can overcome. We can overcome our Candyman fears and not go to the bathroom at night telling ourselves not to think about Candyman, which then makes us think about Candyman. Right.
2: (laughs) So, Dr. Harper, who is Candyman? Okay, first, first, I have to share your nervousness about this. So the reason I wanted to do this at all was because, um, Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele co-wrote a sequel script, um, that came out in the 2021 sequel film, Candyman, to the original 92 version, which I think we're roughly in the same age bracket. And I was also petrified by this movie. I've only I had only seen it the one time up until I decided I would, you know, dive into this after you so graciously invited me to the podcast. Um, and thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this work. Um, but yeah, I was really nervous because I had watched it at a bunkin' party whenever I was 12. And I'm still friends with all of those women who you know I attended that party with. And I emailed them back in October and I was like, guess what I'm about to do? And they were all like, oh no. Right? So, Don't so, do it. Don't do it. Exactly. This could only go badly. Right? So, yeah. so so that was delightful to know that, you know, there there's this whole generation that was traumatized by the original film. No doubt. I've never I've never watched it again. I don't want to. <laughs> I was really afraid. Um, so I, I had watched it by myself. My husband's not a fan of horror movies at all. And of course, my little girl's only, she turned eight two days ago. So she's not old enough to sit with mom and, and watch this kind of movie. I was really nervous. I had on every light in, in the bedroom and the bathroom and my closet was all lit
1: up. But I was like, okay. Covered all the mirrors.
2: Exactly. The mirrors are covered and I've built a blanket for it, right? But I was really astonished whenever I went back and viewed it with a historian's eyes and and as a 40-year-old woman now. The themes that I was just in no way old enough or sophisticated enough to appreciate whenever I was a 12-year-old in 93 in a small town in Arkansas and being a, a white girl were remarkable it was always a story about racial injustice violence gentrification the way that white is privileged over black in this country and I just wasn't just nothing in my life up to that point had prepared me to look at the film that way I just saw you know this horror story right that still makes me nervous whenever I pass a mirror (laughs) you know um, watching it again was really a revelation. And the 92 movie, it's actually based um, on a couple of different things. And this was incredibly interesting to find out too. So the urban legend of Candyman itself doesn't exist as the 92 film portrayed it. That was part of a short story created by horror master Clive Barker um, in a series that he had written in 85 called The Forbidden, which looked at some similar themes that were happening in recession-era Britain in the 1980s. Um, And his story, The Forbidden, centers Helen Lyle, the graduate student, um, who is the protagonist of the 92 film. In his book, she's originally a British graduate student, and she's investigating, you know, some of these similar themes as they existed in urban Britain. Uh, The second part of this story comes from the real-life lived experiences Of the residents of the Cabrini Green high rise, oh excuse me, in Chicago, Illinois, and also um, the Grace Abbott housing complex that is also in that cluster of 50s and 60s built high rises in Chicagoland um, that that were built as low income housing for overwhelmingly a, a black population. So the story itself comes from the murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy. She was a 52-year-old black woman who um, you know, had had a very difficult life. She was actually, I learned this in the research, she was actually Arkansas-born. She was from the Delta. And her family migrated to Chicago during the Great Depression. And so Chicago was pretty much where she was raised all of her life. And she was very poor. Um, She had very little formal education. She had struggled a great deal. And she also battled mental illnesses such as schizophrenia. And what had happened to her was that in 1986 and 1987, she began to believe that somebody was trying to come in through her bathroom cabinet, through the walls of her house. And this was, in fact, Um, a, A real thing that was happening in some of these very poorly constructed, very cheaply built, low income high rises, the bathroom spaces that separated apartments were only separated by about three feet of pipe space. So what people could do was they could essentially knock out the backs of their medicine cabinets and then crawl through about two to three feet of wall space and then punch out the bathroom cabinet space that would have led into another apartment. And this was, in fact, during the late 70s, early 80s, how a lot of young um, burglars were getting back and forth through apartments. Of course, you know, you have the rise of of several different drug epidemics in the early 1980s that, you know, certainly increased um, incidences of poverty and also aggravated assault and robbery and trying to get money for drugs. Um, The Abbott apartments where Mrs. McCoy lived were actually infamous. For several different gangs trying to control these apartments and the way that different members of gangs would maneuver back and forth, robbing residents left, right and center. Cabrini-Green um, occupies a particular space in American social and political housing history. Um, it was made famous at first in Good Times in the 1970s. That's oh, where the yeah, that's where that central family lived, you know, portrayed by John Amos and uh, and um, Esther Williams, you know, so brilliantly, right? That's where J.J. Walker lived. You yeah, know. yeah. Cabrini, Cabrini Green, uh, high rise. But that actually was not the, the, quote unquote, worst project in Chicago. It was actually Abbott. Abbott didn't get the attention because it was not the center of a lot of pop cultural references. Um, I think Cooley High, but the 75 uh, classic was also set um, near the Cabrini Green Apartments. So Abbott never got the attention that Cabrini Green did. And Abbott also didn't occupy this space as terrifying white people in Chicago. One of the reasons that Cabrini Green became this, you know, catchphrase for everything in white imaginations that was terrifying, that was gang related, that was black, right? Is because it actually sat in really close proximity to um, the Magnificent Mile in the north side of Chicago. So if you've never visited Chicago, I've only been once, but it it just doesn't escape your attention right away. It's this incredibly racially segregated city. Um, And that's evident as soon as you're there. There's There's no markers that let you know where you are the way you would have experienced in maybe the segregated South, but it's very clear that it's ethnically segregated. And you've got this incredible tourist district on the north side that's close to Lake Michigan. And then right above that is this space where working class and impoverished black folks mostly occupy. And that is first, you know, the Cabrini Green Projects. So the proximity to whiteness right there is sort of why Cabrini Green occupies this space. But it's actually Abbott, where the Candyman legend you know, in or excuse me, where um, the makers of the Candyman film decided that they could take Clive Barker's story and incorporate it into this real problem that working class and poor black Chicagoans were facing, being the residents of these communities. So the film is actually this melding of, you know, Barker's short story. The real-life murder of Ruthie Mae McCoy, um, this, this won't surprise you at all, but the night that she was murdered um, by intruders who got into her home through the medicine cabinets, um, it, it went under-investigated by police dispatch, who she had called. She had called 911. Um, she had been shot to death by the time that they arrived. Her door was locked The police, you know, knocked on the door, couldn't get any response from her. And so they just left and they didn't follow up because Abbott was a place that was overrun with violence and also overrun with hoaxes. This was a dangerous space for police to be. And there was also a lot of antagonism between this particular community and the Chicago PD. So so Mrs. McCoy wasn't found until about a day and a half after she had been murdered. So this is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just this incredibly devastating cycle of violence, and, and it's very, you know, very racist at its core. And this is what the filmmakers of the 92 Candyman version were inhabiting and what they were commenting on. The original film itself, you know, of course... Tony Todd, who plays the terrifying Candyman, you growling in this wonderful baritone, be my victim, right? It's just, it's, you know, it's going back and watching as an adult woman. I was like, oh, that's, hmm, (laughs) that's actually, that actually maybe is a little sensuous. Maybe it's a little sexy. The 12-year-old that was still in me, though, was like, oh, God, run, 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 you know? But he's he's very clearly this malevolent spirit watching, though, with all of the knowledge that I have. This is a story that's actually about a brutal, brutal lynching, because in the film, Candyman, who is not given a name proper in the 92 version in the 2021 version, we learned that his name was actually Daniel He was what's established in the original movie is that he was born an enslaved man, came to Chicago, was a prolific artist. His talent attracted a lot of wealthy white benefactors who hired him for his for his brilliance. He fell in love with the white daughter of one of his employers and she fell in love with him. She wound up pregnant and then her father essentially sicked a lynch mob on him that cut off his hand so he could not be able to paint, jammed a hook into the hand, then went and got honey and smeared it over his prone naked body and allowed a hive of bees to sting him to death. After this incredible torture, they then lit him on fire and scattered his ashes over the land that would eventually be the Cabrini Green project. So I'm watching this story this fall, watching this movie again with fresh eyes. I mean, like, oh, my word. This is actually the the villain here. I mean, it's a slasher flick. It's it's a gorgeous piece of horror film. Candyman is malevolent, but it's incredibly hard to watch this movie and not be like, Candyman was right. (laughs) Candyman is right to be angry. Of course, he's this malevolent spirit. And I think that the 92 filmmakers were trying to make this kind of racial commentary. They were trying to show That, you know, really the boogeyman here is white violence. But it's a really awkward film also because at the heart of it is Virginia Madsen's Helen Lyle. And I love Virginia Madsen as an actress, but she's a white blonde actress. And she is very centered as the protagonist. And it becomes increasingly clear, at least to to me, you know, particularly by the time that we get to the end of the movie, Candyman is really trying to recreate the life that was stolen from him. He's attracted to Helen, not just because she doesn't believe in him. And his vanity is angry at that. She's this very skeptical person, and it's her skepticism that is affecting the Cabrini Green community's belief in him, which affects his ability to exist on this astral plane. But it's also that she's a representation of the love that he had, the baby that he would have had. He's very much trying to reclaim what was stolen from him. And there's so much sympathy in that. And then here is Helen really poised as this white savior. Um, She actually, and and this is the link in between the 92 film and the 2021 film. um, She winds up rescuing a baby named Anthony, who his black mother couldn't protect from Candyman, right? So Helen is seen as this ultimate white savior in the film. She rescues baby Anthony as she is actually burning herself. You remember how the end of the film went, right? She gives the baby back to his mother and and she dies from the wounds that she sustains here and then in one of the final shots of that original film, I the entire Cabrini Green community comes to essentially pay its respects to this white woman who has purged them of the malevolent spirit of Candyman, who you know is actually a victim of the same racial politics that continues to pit them in this, you know terrible circumstance in in Chicago so so it's really a discordant film to go back and watch um I actually complained to my husband last night I was like it really stinks trying to just enjoy movies or anything whenever you're just constantly running a stream of oh but wait this is why this is happening and oh wait I don't know about this and wait 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 this is super problematic right But um, interestingly, though, in the 2021 film, this this beautiful link is that the, the central character in that film is Anthony. Baby Anthony has grown up. He's become an artist in his own right. And you find through that film that he is now spiritually linked to the spirit of Candyman. Um, you know, the, the experience of being kidnapped as this infant and and truly he he was you remember he was a baby, he wasn't a toddler, that has linked him to the to, to this broader spirit that the 2021 film refines into um several different people. According to the 2021 lore, Candyman has been several different. Black men over time who have been victimized by police and state violence, white brutality. There certainly are shades of various um, infamous lynchings that, that have happened that have influenced the Candyman legacy um, throughout the history of the American upper Midwest. There's also some allusions to the electrocution of George Stinney Jr., a nine-year-old black boy in South Carolina who was accused of raping two white girls. Um, and, and it's it's put in the context of Chicago in this case. But for the 2021 film, Candyman represents... Black retaliation and protection against white vengeance. So it's a very different sort of story. Um, It does some really incredible things. It brings back Anne-Marie Cox, who... er, No, I'm sorry. Anne-Marie Cox is the name of the character. Vanessa Williams, the actress who played Anthony's mother in the 92 version, comes back for a, a brief series of shots in the 2021 film, which is really excellent. Um, In the last few scenes of the movie, Tony Todd reprises his classic role as Candyman, um, which is really beautiful to watch. And and I just didn't appreciate just truly what a fantastic actor he was. And that I've actually seen him in several other things and not recognized that it was him <laughs> since I was 12 years old, right? Um, But it's really a much more direct indictment of, ongoing, systemic racial violence. Um, I did not expect to be moved by any of this in the way that I was. It's it's still a horror story for me, but a very different kind of horror story than what I initially thought I was signing up to do, which was basically torture myself. So,
1: right. You're braver than I am, for sure. So... Um if we could I'd like to take a couple of steps back and um maybe contextualize some things just uh for people maybe that don't know the the history as well and also maybe we can contextualize a few things for people maybe who haven't seen the film and, and don't know why we're all so terrified uh, <laughs> as children um So you mentioned the housing complexes in Chicago, and there was the particular story, which is a common one, right, of um, people leaving economic poverty in the South, right, and trying to, you know, find a better way for themselves in the North, the Great Migration, right, where all of these African Americans leave the South and go to these urban spaces um, like Chicago. So how do we get from how do we get from there, you know, to, to World War II, you know, brings us out of, out of the depression. Now all of these people are relocated into these urban spaces. So how do we get from kind of this idea of we're going to seek opportunity to we've been, you know, essentially segregated into these kind of low income spaces. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people aren't familiar with, you know, the history of housing complexes and urban spaces and how they work. And so I know like, you know, we don't have time to do the whole history of that, but um, if you just want to provide a little bit of context of, you know, what, what is happening that causes places like Cabrini green and the Abbott housing development to emerge when they do and where they do.
2: Sure. No, that's a really great question. Um, and it's important to, to, Put that framework on this. So, initially in the Great Migration, you do have these very hopeful Black Southerners mostly who are going into the upper Midwest, into these urban areas. And what happens whenever they get there? This is also an era that you have a lot of um, international immigration happening to the United States. So all of these people are essentially descending on these urban areas that are in no way equipped to deal with the volume of new people who are in these spaces. And so there is always in these working class and poor areas quite a lot of um, competition for housing, inadequate housing, inadequate public services, um, certainly inadequate utilities. And so there's this strain on services in general that really belies this, this idea that marginalized folks from the South are going to come into this kind of Northern Valhalla. Right away, that is, that, that is kind of shot for them. Um, also the fact is, is that a lot of these spaces have their own problems with race and ethnicity that, that are very long-lived in these communities. And Chicago is just a, a shining example of one of these places that really is this this kind of cesspool of racial and ethnic politics and, and discrimination. So you get to World War II, and theoretically, the post-war environment created by, you know, all of manufacturing jobs and, and the boon to our economy would have lifted these folks out of poverty, except that you had mechanisms like the GI Bill that were being implemented um, in a very discriminatory fashion, white, vets had much greater access to that bill than did black or brown vets, and you see white flight en masse happening in the 40s as white people flee out to the suburbs, taking that tax base with them, then you still have the problems of of inadequate housing that you had at the turn of the 20th century. The federal government and, and state and local governments are now better equipped to deal with these problems. They're flush with cash, and their solution is to build low income housing, which sounds great, except that it is intentionally ghettoized. And I'm using that verb intentionally because initially there were programs set up by white administrators in Chicago to integrate lower income housing into white neighborhoods in the cities to give you know, better access to schools, public services, all these things. And the residents of Chicago balk at this. White residents in the city, um, white immigrants, first generations, they very much balk at this because that hasn't been the culture of this particular city or a lot of cities like it. And so you have this ghettoizing of black Chicagoans and you also have, you know, the, the issue of trying to get more bang for your buck it is easier to build cheaply built high rises than trying to construct, you know, individual homes for people. And because of the residents, because of who they are, there's very little impetus from the city, except for really particular points, you know, it like it's such as like in the 1960s where, you know, where we got uh, LBJ leading the, the war on poverty and trying to create the great society. You have these blips on the timeline where there is some concerted interest in bettering the quality of life for these people. But the attitude largely is these are working class people. They're people of color. They're black people specifically. Literally stick them over here and we'll forget about them. And then white Chicago or other people that, you know, the city government or the state government or the Fed thinks are more worthy will be more heavily invested in. So that's, you know, the the Reader's Digest version of how you create this culture of really gross inequity, especially whenever you consider that the way that services are invested in is largely funded through taxpayer money. Well, who has the most money to invest? Where are those people? They're no longer over here near these projects they're all out you know beyond the loop and and what have you um i hope that for our our listeners that that is a good encapsulation of how we get to this space where we have such a mess
1: no i think that that's brilliant thank you so much that was very good um
2: okay it's <laughs> very kind you
1: know? <laughs> so the um the movie context of the movie so for people maybe who haven't seen the film either one of them um but i i have not seen the 2021 and while i really appreciate everything that you're saying about the social commentary I, I i don't know i don't know if i'm i don't know if i'm brave enough courageous enough strong enough to to try to watch the 2021 version or go back and watch the original quite frankly but anyway um for folks maybe that aren't familiar they may be wondering about the victims of Candyman. So, you know, the story, as, as you've explained it to us, is, you know, it's about this lynching, is this commentary on racism in Chicago and these kind of black and white relationships um, and how, you know, it's very complicated, you know, kind of white savior ideals and, and all of these um, themes People might be wondering, so if Candyman's really upset about what happened, the violence that he experienced at the hands of white people, why is he targeting black people? Vanessa Williams is a black woman. Why is she one of his victims? No,
2: that's, that's a fantastic question. And this is something that I definitely think the 92 version does a lot better in terms of really really embracing its own genre because as as much as all of this highfalutin conversation that we're having here, you know, is important and we need to suss that out. The 92 film genuinely is a horror movie. I don't know that you can call the 2021 film a traditional horror movie, unless you're putting all of this social commentary around it because Candyman does terrorize Cabrini Green. He is this vengeful spirit and he's, In so much of the original movie, he wants to wreak havoc. He's a very vain kind of spiritual menace. That's part of the reason that the graduate student character, Helen, um, you know, really invokes his ire is because she comes in as this graduate student. She's initially studying the history of the Chicagoland projects whenever she stumbles on this particular urban legend. And of course, you know, she's like us. she's in her ivory tower and she can say, oh, well, this is clearly a legend that, you know, has been created to help people who live in in really desperate situations to kind of cope and explain what's going on. So there's this really wonderful thread that ties into how humans deal with trauma and, and the folklore that we create around that to deal with that, which is really nice. And that really goes to underline that angers Candyman very much. As as her rationale, you know, really begins to diminish people's belief in him and the projects, then his spirit is even more vengeful. So that's something really Nice that the original film does to sort of keep it a traditional horror movie, and it's the kind of thing that petrified us as children and still makes us pretty superstitious, you know, <laughs> in the dead of night, right? It doesn't matter that my bed is three feet from the bathroom. Turn that light on. Here we go. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and and the performances are incredible. Um, Virginia Madsen really does capture. The terror of somebody who thinks that they are sophisticated beyond believing in those things that go bump in the night as she begins to have this descent into realizing, oh, no, the supernatural Candyman and and perhaps everything else is quite real and that that's quite connected to our lived physical experience and then Tony Todd's performance as Candyman is just petrifying because he's not a Freddy Krueger type of mad slasher villain. He is this gorgeous, tall, statuesque character who moves so silkily. He he wears this incredible coat that's got like this brown Sherpa collar and it's, it's a brown leather coat that goes all the way down. It's very evocative of the late 19th century, whenever he was lynched, right? And he's coming and he doesn't immediately start waving his hook for a hand. It's all very deliberate. And the stage work that he does is incredible. And his voice is intentionally gravelly and low and terrifying. And he basically, his his motivations, you realize, are two things. He is distraught and he is grief stricken, But he also loves what he gets to do, too. And that's what makes him so terrifying. He has several lines in the original film where he tells Helen, oh, gosh, I wrote one down right here. And I want to say it in its entirety because it's so it's beautiful writing, but it's also petrifying. He goes, he's looking at Helen And he's really hypnotizing her as she stares at him. And this is where you begin to see the terror in her realize how real all of this is. And Tony Todd says this incredible line. He says, why do you want to live? If you had learned just a little from me, you would not beg to live. And it's this incredible moment that goes into this other monologue of his where he talks about how he, you know, exists beyond the the dreams of men and that, you know, what is blood if not for shedding? And being a lynched victim and living as this terror in the minds of people offers him a kind of power that he wants to share with Helen, And when you realize how much this malevolent spirit likes what he does, he is all of these other things, but he also he's into it. That's the scariest part. He likes being summoned. He wants to be summoned. He wants to create fear in the hearts of people Regardless of their age, regardless of their race, regardless of where they are. The original movie opens up with Helen learning about the Candyman legend um, from a woman who's recounting an instance that actually happened in Indiana, you know, a thousand or so miles away from Chicago, where this white suburban couple, they're, they're just playing around and they summon him, right? And, you know, the woman winds up murdered and it's very grisly. His spirit lives for this. That's the thing that makes it most terrifying is that he is a masochist in this spiritual realm. And I, I think that that is definitely what lingered for me and for you and for other people was that, you know, there, there's definitely, he wants to wreak havoc. So, and that's something that is missing from the 2021 film. It's very much set up as this commentary, particularly of white police violence, which I have to think is just, you know, so much of Jordan Peel and Nia DeCosta's indictment of the Chicago PD in mm-hmm. particular. Um and it's not that it's not good or that it's not scary, but it I I don't know that an adult person watching the 2021 movie could be terrified in the same supernatural kind of way it's just a very different film so uh how about this then so
1: most of the listeners will be well all of them really should be familiar with the uh current events that would you know lead to this uh sequel this reinterpretation that what is very clearly social commentary about uh, police violence and and these communities and things like that is is there anything um, that we should be thinking about going on in the '90s that would have provided some sort of social context for the the original iteration?
2: Oh, absolutely, and that's that's a marvelous question. So you have the actual events that were taking place in Chicago's projects throughout the 1980s, and the original film was. Um, Written and shot, I think, over the course of 91 and then released in 92.
1: I might be slightly early 90s, right? So, yeah, it would have been inspired by late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Cusp 90. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so that connective tissue is still there, but also in the year that it was released. So, it was released October 92. The Rodney King riots have just happened in the summer of 92 out in California. And this was on the heels of. You know, Watts being declared the worst neighborhood, worst community for violence, for danger, for drug running, for gang activity in the United States. And you had a lot of paranoia and and not unfounded either of gang activity in the country's urban areas because the crack epidemic had exploded. There was so much paranoia and fear about STDs. Um, And this, this was certainly not something I thought about in 1993. (laughs) But it was like, okay, so our obsession with blood going back and looking at this, and the reason that, you know, horror films, and particularly mad slashers are so popular in the late 80s and early 90s, is that connected to our own paranoia about blood about AIDS about sexually transmitted diseases that are carried through bodily fluids, especially blood. So I think that there are a lot of more obvious metaphors to take Candyman for the actual, you know, inspiration that comes from the script that's out of Chicago. Uh, You know, Clive Barker's incredible imagination, but then you also have this plethora of social problems and also, you know, Another health epidemic that is really driving social discourse. I think that you can pick out lots of ways that Candyman was responding to a very, a very scared population of people across race and across class in nineteen ninety-two. Yeah,
1: that's uh
2: I don't know, it's um you alluded to this earlier
1: that, you know, when you become an academic, it's very difficult to ever just Take things at face value anymore. You're always kind of digging in a little bit deeper, thinking, what, what does that represent? Oh, that, that's highlighting this thing. I mean, and I think it's maybe annoying if we're just trying to sit back and watch, watch television, but, um, <laughs> it's also, I think, the the element that we try so hard to instill in our students, right, to not take things at face value, to really kind of examine the world critically. Don't be cynical, right, but, but approach the world with a critical eye and, and appreciate the fact that Things that are happening now are oftentimes informed by things that have happened previously. And then we'll go on to inform things that happen in the future. Right. And so maybe Candyman is also illustrative of that as well.
2: I concur a hundred percent. I still don't
1: like the fact that academically it makes sense because I'm still scared.
2: <laughs> I'm still scared. Well, and and honestly, I wanted to be scared I wanted to be scared. I wanted to feel that trepidation as soon as that incredible score comes on. Um, I don't know if you remember the opening of the film, because I certainly didn't until I did the rewatch. But there's this wonderful aerial shot of the loop in Chicago and you see the high rises and you see the Batman building and the Chicago River. And it's very much I mean, it feels like urban decay. And I, I didn't actually say this, but gentrification as a theme is a big part of the 92 film, as well as it basically is the heart of the 2021 film. But you're seeing this in the initial opening of of the 92 version. And there's this magnificent score and everything is gray. And I pulled my covers up. I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, right. You know, and so I'm there. And then whenever I'm watching it with my, you know, with, with my critical thinking hat on, I'm like, right, because... I wanted the fear. That's why we go to horror movies, right? That's why we. That's love. why I don't go to horror movies. Well, actually, <laughs> I learned at a very young age that I don't like to be afraid. So, <laughs> right. But for, for, for audiences that do like that, that's the thing that they crave. It's that adrenaline, absolutely. You know, and and for that to go away, I was like, oh,
1: uh, uh, you know, <laughs> no doubt, no doubt, ruined forever. Um. <laughs> well, this has been fascinating. Is there, um, is there any element of Candyman, um, the legend, or the movies that you think that we
2: should know about before we leave? Oh, good. Um, so one of the the hardest things for me on rewatching the original is that there there is this trope there of the scary black man. And I think that that certainly is something that the 2021 movie is trying to correct is that black men are not monsters. Um, so I think definitely for folks who have never seen either film or they're new to this legend, I, I think that if you want to engage with these movies, that it's very important to keep that at the forefront of your, of your mind. Um, but i also think too if if you are able if you have listened to our conversation here today and if you are able to kind of divorce yourself from this for just a few minutes it's a wonderfully engaging story to to get lost in and i think that you know particularly for folks who appreciate literature, who appreciate, you know, um, the the concept of folklore and what ties us all together. And I I hope that this doesn't sound too hokey, but knowing that you share the same experience and being traumatized by this movie as a child, I feel closer to you now. I I hope that we can, that, that folks who are listening to this podcast and are interested in this movie go into looking at this with the same kind of humanity, looking for those things that connect us, which are these deep primal cultural urges to, 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 you know, resist what goes bump in the night. And, and so I hope that there are a myriad of ways that folks dive into, into Candyman now. And if they're, they're brave
0: enough to do so, they'll be stronger than me.
2: Um, well, Dr.
1: Harper, this is wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time um, to speak with everyone today. And hopefully everyone will be inspired
2: to to go see the movie. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Mize.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please join us next time when we will learn about one of history's most famous mysteries, The Princes in the Tower. Speak with you soon.